Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn on the house lights so I can actually see people. That would be awesome. Um, you are all the way up. Boom. Keep going. All the way. You are the beneficiaries of a first service that brought their warm bodies in here and warmed this room up 10 degrees. So it was 58, and you get to sit in a nice balmy 68. So uh, you can thank that first service this week. It was freezing in here this morning. Uh, the band got here at 6.30. We thank them for uh, warming it up for us a little bit. Anyway, uh, it's supposed to stop today, I hear. It's no longer like 10 degrees at night. It's supposed to maybe be a regular 30, back to being like South Carolina in the winter. So uh, hopefully that'll happen. If you're from the north and you're down here, this is not normal. Uh, it really is better here than where you're from, probably, and it's going to get warmer. Um, I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, so we have... Uh, been going through the book of Ephesians for a little while. Uh, we had a little two-week break, and now we're back into the letter to the Ephesians, starting at chapter 4, verse 17. Verse 17 is where we'll be today. At Remedy, we, uh, if you're able, we ask you to stand and we read the text together, and then after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And by saying thanks be to God, you're, you're obviously thanking the Lord that he would be so kind to speak to us and give us his word. But also you're in your heart and mind kind of saying the things that I hear, the things that you teach me, I want to say yes to them and obey them as well. So if you're able to stand, let's all stand and I'll read uh, verse, starting at verse 17 through the end of the chapter together in Ephesians chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something <clears throat> to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you would give us your word. And as we read it and as we study it this morning, we pray that you would help us first also, first, Lord, that we would, uh, we would understand it. We would see the plain words of the text, the plain meaning of the text, and in our minds and in our hearts comprehend what it is you're saying. And then further than that, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would not only teach us to have understanding but that what he would cause our hearts to want to obey these things, that we would see these things and say, yes, we want these things in our heart and life. And so we, we pray that you would do that. It's only uh, because of you that, that that would happen. And so we pray that it would happen, Lord. I pray for myself that you would help me speak clearly and um, teach clearly. And Lord, that uh, if there's anything that's unhelpful, that you would keep me from saying those things. Bless this time and bless all of us to... Uh, Respond accordingly to your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And as I've said, there won't be any notes on the screen today. Uh, I want you to just kind of listen um, to how this works. It's really simple, uh, the text. But as we've been going through the text uh, of the book of Ephesians, I've said over and over that the first three chapters are more doctrine, where Paul lets us know... Who, who, what our identity is in Christ. It reminds us of what Christ has done, etc. There's not a whole lot of imperatives or commands. He hasn't told you, live this way, do these things, don't do these things. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, all he's really been doing is just 
reminding us of who our identity is, reminding us what Christ has done, etc. And as you get to the second half of the book uh, is where he starts talking about this is what it practically looks like. Now that you know those things, this is what it practically looks like to live that out. Um, And so we're we're getting into that now as we look at this particular text in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 32. And really as we look at it, this, this set of verses, 17 through 22, is really just three sections. Um, and it's not till the third section till he actually gives you practical stuff you should do. Before he does that, in the first section, he reminds you of who you were in Christ when you, I'm sorry, who you were before you were in Christ, whenever you weren't an, a, a believer but an unbeliever. He does that in verses 17 through 19. He reminds us of uh, three, really three characteristics of what an unbeliever looks like. And then in the next section, in verses 21, or you could say 20, but probably 21 to 24, he talks about the gospel's work in us and what's happened as we've trusted Christ. And then, starting at verse 25, is where he actually gets into the practical part of what it looks like. And then for the rest of the book, he'll give us even more practical advice on what it looks like to be a Christian. Based on your identity in chapters 1 through 3, uh, this is what you should look like, this is what it sh- you should do, this is what you should stop doing. I want to make sure that you understand something. So uh, it's really easy for all of us, whenever uh, we're going through life, uh, for us just to say, just tell me what I need to stop doing and tell me what I need to start doing. I need my list so that I can obey the list. Um, and what Paul's trying to do and really what Jesus is trying to do is saying, okay, that's good, right? Things that are bad in your life, you should not want to do those things. Things that are good, righteous acts, you should want to start doing those things. But uh, before you know the list, Understand that the reason why you obey that list is very important. We don't want you to just get the list so you can finally just have the list so you can just start uh, doing things that God wants. That's obeying God out of legalism. And that's not what really uh, Paul, the Holy Spirit, Christ is, is after, right? What he wants you to do, and that's why he's doing this, telling you who you are, reminding you of the gospel's work, and then telling you so that the reason why you obey is not out of legalistic rules. Finally, I know what I need to do that makes God happy. Let me know but instead because you are so amazed at what Christ has done. You are so enamored with Jesus that you cannot believe that he would bring you into his family. That You, you don't just have the list because you want to accomplish it, but instead you want to know the things that please God, and out of love, not legalism, you want to obey. Out of love, not legalism. So the motivation behind it is absolutely crucial. Now, I want you, all of us, to stop sinning <laughs> and start doing righteous acts. So, of course, that's good, right? That's, in the end, that's still a good thing. But the motivation behind it can be, can be pretty terrible. And we don't want it to be terrible. We want it to be pleasing. We don't want to obey out of legalism. We want to obey out of love. So, as we're looking at this particular text, uh, the, the identity in Christ that we have now, uh, putting on this new spiritual identity means this. It doesn't mean, now that I have it, I can do whatever I want. Or now that I have it, I finally arrived. Now that you have it, it comes now with corresponding responsibilities. It comes with uh, the need for you to identify sin in your life, kill those things, and to do righteous acts. So uh, Paul starts off this particular text by, as I said, reminding us who we once were. That's the first thing he does. Reminding us that who we once were, we were pagans. And he actually gives us three characteristics of what pagans look like. He could give more. But he does these three. You can see them in verses 17 through 19. Now I say this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. That word walk uh, is more like live. So it's kind of like as you walk in life day by day, step by step, or how many ever steps you take, you might have Fitbits and you know how many steps you take per day. I have no idea. My phone tells me, but I don't look it up because, you know, the Lord's got me. No, I'm just kidding. So like, we, I don't have to count my steps. I probably should. I'm getting in my, my old age. But, but just think of it as like, As I walk through life, every step I take, every single step I take throughout the day, throughout my entire life counts. The Lord wants me to watch how I walk as I live my life. And so when you see walk, think of that as live, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now that could feel like a kind of a backhanded slap to to the Ephesians because they're Gentiles, right? They're not in Jerusalem. They're way far north. They're way up there in Ephesus, and they're all Gentiles. So he's not talking about uh, Gentiles as in your, their, your, their ethnicity, but more in their religiosity and more in what they believe. Gentiles as in, not opposite of Jews, but Gentiles as in, there's people who live for Christ and then there's pagans. So 
think of it as, as pagans when he says that. So it's not a backhanded slap to those who are in Ephesus. He loves them, but he's just, he's writing in a way to help them understand. So don't live in such a way or live as the, the pagans do. And then he tells us three things about them, three characteristics. They live in the futility of their minds, and that futility of minds is a darkened understanding. That's the first one. Futility of mind, darkened understanding, all number one. The second one is they're alienated from the life of God. They, they don't get to have a life with God. They're alienated from that. That's the second characteristic of a pagan. And they're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. And then the third one is here is that they've become callous. So they're callous towards sin. And, and they have a, given themselves into sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So as you're looking at this, he's reminding of who we all once were as pagans. We were uh, lived in futility of mind. We had darkened understanding. We were alienated from the life of God because we had hard hearts. And we were calloused towards sin. We were callous towards sin. So let's, let's look at these things and remember, because this is always a good practice, who we were. So when we see the second section about what Christ has done, our hearts will leap and abound in joy. We won't say, ho-hum, God saved me. That's great. But instead, when we remember where we were, and now we see what Christ has done, we rejoice. We are absolutely amazed that Christ would do this. First is that our, we had futility of mind or a darkened understanding. So... Uh, this means every person who's made in the image of God has been given certain levels of thought uh, or intelligence or, or whatever. There's brilliant people that are pagans and there's non-brilliant people <laughs> that are pagans. There's brilliant people that are Christians and there's even people that aren't necessarily the smartest that are, that are Christians. I, I feel like I fall into there. But anyway, so like the point is this, that we have a futility of mind uh, the, when we're outside of Christ. We may have brilliant minds, but whenever we use our minds and we exercise our understanding, we still have a darkened understanding that the way we live whenever we're pagans, whether we're brilliant or not, is always still uh, sinful and inclined towards self-centeredness, inclined towards not having the light of Christ shined in and truth abounding so that we understand who Christ is, what he's done, and we are, the gospel doesn't infect the way we live our lives or the way that we think about things. So people can be brilliant, but they still have futility of mind. They still have a darkness of mind. Calvin says, all men know that there's a God and that it is our duty to worship him. But such is the power of sin and ignorance that from this confused knowledge, we pass all at once to, idol, to an idol and worship it in the place of God. So brilliant pagans still are idolaters. They don't worship God. They don't give glory to God. And that's what he's talking about. All of us, all of us were idolaters. We all had a darkened understanding of God. The second thing is that we were alienated from the life of God. Now, if you were to tell an unbeliever, you know, as an unbeliever, you're really missing out on getting to live your life with God. You're missing out on that. They would say, I don't care. But as believers, we can understand this a little bit better. Like, we get to live our lives day by day having God in us and walking through this troubled, persecuted fallen world with God and we just see the unbelievable benefits that we get to pray that we have a hope that we whenever things happen we're not we just don't say well that's just the way it goes and then we die and then we go take our dirt nap forever like we we think there's a hope after this this fallen world doesn't just say this is all it is and then whatever like we get to live our life with God so we get to see this great benefit of knowing what it's like to walk as a believer through our 70 80 90 years but they don't. They're alienated from the life of God. They have ignorance of what it means to live for the glory of God. And they're, because they are alienated from living for the glory of God, they're actually uh, discounted from being able to just walk with God their entire life. So the first one is that they're darkened in the understanding. The second is they're actually alienated from life in God. Just, just consider for those that have been believers for even just a year, but even 30 years, of how glorious it is to be able to walk through this life with God. And they don't have this. And the third thing you can see is this, that they've become callous. They've become callous. So like uh, 
callousness can be a good thing with guitar. Whenever you pick up the guitar and you start playing, you really want your fingers to get these deep calluses so that whenever you press into the strings, it doesn't hurt anymore. You don't have to like, oh, and then soak your fingers in cold water or whatever. You eventually want that because being callous means your past feeling. Your past feeling. So in a guitar, that's good. But to have a heart that's past feeling is bad. This means that you have become so accustomed to sin that whenever you sin, it's past feeling bad. It's callous. It feels nothing. And so those that are unbelievers are callous towards sin. Their sensibilities about what's right and wrong have been absolutely destroyed and they have abandoned themselves into all kinds of sinful practices. They are unmoved whenever they are told the judgment of God is on you because of this. They're unmoved by it. They're past feeling. This is a terrible place. This is a terrible place to be. They, uh, they go on indulging themselves in all kinds of sin. As a matter of fact, it says they become so callous to give themselves up to sensuality. It says that they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the opposite of greed is moderation. We as believers know that this is something that Christ wants us to, to, to practice always. Moderation. Not giving to yourselves too far into thing except for worshiping Jesus. You don't have to moderate yourself in worshiping Jesus. You can just go all out in that, right? But in most things, it's wise for us to be moderate so that we don't worship other things over Jesus. But here, uh, they're greedy. They, it's the opposite of moderation. Greedy people want more than they're due. Always more. So even when they get more, they want even more. They never, ever, ever stop wanting. And it says that they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This means that there's no end ever, no satisfaction ever to their sinful practices. They always want more. Always want more. And they, they willingly put themselves down the rabbit hole. They're self-centered, self-absorbed, and self-destroying. They practice with reckless abandon every kind of impurity and unclean thing. So we should stop now and look at these three things and examine even our own heart. Do I have a futility of mine? Do I have a life that's alienated from God? Am I completely calloused towards sin? And reflect on our own hearts and ask, are we still without Christ? If those things are happening in our lives, we should stop and say, actually, I'm not a believer. And the only right thing for you to do now is trust in Christ, who gave his life for you. Your sinful practices, my sinful practices, earned Rightly so, death. Spiritual death and death forever. But Christ died for us. We didn't, he, he gave his own life for death so that we wouldn't have to die. And if we trust in his death for us on our behalf, then we're given all of his righteousness because he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. So the only thing you should do right now as you reflect on that first section, if you're not a believer, is to trust in Christ. Believe in Jesus right now. Examine your heart, examine where you are. But if you are in Christ, Paul has described every, for every single one of us our life before Christ so that whenever we see what the gospel's work has done, your heart, as we look at section two, should leap right now with joy. It should absolutely be amazed at what Christ has done. So when we're going into uh, really kind of the end of 21 through 24, he's telling us the gospel's internal work, what it's done, uh, it's meant to cause us to leap with joy, but also understand what the gospel's work is so that when we get to section three and we talk about what the, our life looks like, when we, when we respond um, and try to kill sin and when we try to do righteous acts, we're not responding out of legalism, but we're responding out of love. So this, this second section is really kind of a, a twofold purpose. To remind us who we were, first purpose, to cause our hearts to leap with joy. And as we look forward at verses 25 and following, that we respond to obedience to 25 through 32 out of love and not legalism. So, uh, but before we get there, you've got verse 20 and 21 as a kind of a transition phrase that gets us to that second section. Uh, remember as we studied through the book of Acts that Paul planted the church in Ephesus. If you remember, he spent three years with them working hard as he could, uh, making tents in the mornings and evenings and renting out the hall of Tyrannus in the afternoon and preaching the gospel. And he planted the gospel there for three years. And so most of the people 
he, he led to Christ himself or was a part of them coming to know Christ. But then after he left, there, some time had passed. Presumably, those people led people to Christ. And so there's those Paul led and some people that are Christians that he doesn't know. But he didn't lead them to Christ. But he's assuming that they heard about Jesus the same way the first people heard about Jesus because Paul led them. That's what 20 through 21 is saying. Assuming, but that's not the way that you learned Christ. You, you were dead in, in, in your sin, but you learned Christ. Because I, I shared Christ with you, those people in Ephesus. But there's also some people I haven't. And that's why he says, assuming that you heard about him. Because there's some of you I know that are Christians that, that I didn't talk to personally. And I'm assuming that you heard about him. And then he says, and we're taught in him as the truth as in Jesus. So here he's saying, that's not the way that you learn Christ. You didn't learn Christ to live this particular way. You didn't learn Christ that you should remain darkened in your, in your heart. You didn't learn Christ that you should remain alienated from the life of God. You didn't learn Christ so that you would stay callous to sin. Instead, you learned Christ to realize those things should pass off. Uh, John Calvin says it this way. He whose life differs not from that of unbelievers has learned nothing of Christ. For the knowledge of Christ cannot be separated from the mortification of the flesh or the killing of sin. So since you learn Christ, you should absolutely want to kill sin in your life. Not out of legalism, but out of love. Assuming, as he says, that you were taught in him. As, as Tony Morita says, this isn't formal education. This is transformational education. This means that you haven't just learned mere knowledge about Jesus, but that Jesus has transformed your life. And since that's happened, as he's talking to the Ephesians, you should want to live differently. And now he's going to, in verses 21 through 24, tell them now in the second section, the gospel's internal transformational work that's happened in their life. He's going to lay it out for them so that whenever he gets to the next section, that they understand this is how I live a life that obeys God based on the gospel, based on what Christ has done. Now, as we look at 21 through 24, uh, as he talks about the gospel's transformational work in our life and that we're new creations, he really tells us uh, three specific things that has happened. And those three things are, uh, are enumerated or marked by the infinitives. If you don't know what an infinitive is, it's just the, the two, the T-O in front of the verb, like to jump, to leap to run whatever right so he he um enumerates the three things when he talks about the gospel's work by the twos and they're and they're really in each particular verse so you can say assuming that you have heard about him you are taught in him as the truth is in jesus here it is to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful practices and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So as you look at this, you can see there's three things that the gospel has done demarcated by those, those three infinitives. So the first thing that is done, it has caused us to put off the old self. The second thing is it has caused us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And the third thing is to put on the new self. Not to keep teaching grammar, but one other thing I want to show. I think we all know the difference between active and passive verbs. Active is something you do. Passive is something that's been done to you, right? So active verb, uh, I jump, to jump, or here, to put off the old self, to put on the new self. We can see that the first and third are active. The middle one is a passive verb. It's something that happens, like I just got hit by a football. Right? That, I, I didn't throw the football, it hit me. It passively happened to me. That second one is, you can see it, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's a passive verb. That means the first and third ones are actions that you do. You put off the old self. You put on the new self. Yes, absolutely, in conjunction with God's work, Philippians 2, 11 and 12, yes, still the Lord is doing that. But still, we want to make sure we note the active sense of that verb. You put off the old self. You put on the new self. But in the middle, it's telling us, that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is clear the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing this to us, which is fine. It's good, right? It's a good thing. So let's look at those three things um, and understand them. How, can it, how is it possible for us to even put off the old self? How is it possible for us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind? How is it possible for us to put on the new self? These things are possible because you have already trusted in Christ. Stop 
says, it is because we have already put off our old nature uh, in that decisive act of repentance called conversion that we can logically be commanded to put away these practices and reject that old life, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, put on the new self. So what do we mean here when we say this, to put off the old self? What does that, what does that mean whenever you're told to put off the old self? You do this. To put off the old self involves true repentance. It's whenever you come to a knowledge of your sinful state, as we just talked about in those first set of verses, 17 through 19. And whenever you realize this, that it breaks your heart. You've been regenerated. You see that this is grotesque. You see that this is unacceptable. You see that this is not what pleases God. And you repent. Metanoia. You, you have a, a 180 turn to where you no longer want to walk in sin, but you ask forgiveness of God and you walk towards Jesus, away from sin. There's a, a repentant act that happens here. This is putting off the old self, leaving it behind, and now going into a new life. Where there is no repentance, there is no putting off the old self. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says it this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. When we put off the old self, the Bible tells us that we are now free, free from sin. You as a believer, even though I know you and I both will still think about, struggle with, and maybe even practice sin as a believer, you're free from it. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you, unlike an unbeliever, you do not have to sin anymore. You will never reach perfection, but you don't have to. You can continually by the power of the, of the Spirit, absolutely know that you are free from sin. That's an amazing promise. So we put off the old self. We no longer have to do that. We reject that, as it says, the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be slave to sin. Hear that and believe that. The old self was crucified. When we put it off, it's gone. And now we walk into newness of life. Now, the second thing that happens is that there's a renewing in the spirit of our mind. But I want to go back to that other thing. R- remember, that is an active verb. You repent, you act, you really of your own free will put off the old self, repent, and say, no more. Yes, Philippians 2, 11 and 12, you and God do it, but you do it. We, we are not automatons. We are not robots. We are true, believing, acting real decision makers. And we say, I want to put off the old self and repent of my sin and walk towards righteousness. We also, the second thing, we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. Passively, this is the Holy Spirit coming in and doing things in our heart and mind that are amazing. He's revealing to you these things, right? Every person that's an unbeliever still does things that are virtuous, uh, probably for themselves, not for the glory of Christ. I shouldn't even say probably. For themselves, not for the glory of Christ, but they also do things that aren't. And in this particular time where we're being renewed in the spirit of our mind, the Holy Spirit is revealing these things that we see as virtuous in our life and as sinful and telling us both of these things now have to be done to the glory of God. These things that are good that you do and you did them for your own glory, now you do them for Christ's glory. And these things that are sinful, you no longer do these things. Instead, you do the positive of those things for the glory of God. Renewed in the spirit of our mind, he continually shows us both areas of our hearts, virtuous and unvirtuous, that have to change and all be done for the glory of God. This is what it means to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then we put on the new self. We put on the new self. You can say, hey, when does that happen? When does all this happen? I think it happens at regeneration and in sanctification. <laughs> this is a continual, it's a one-time thing and a continual thing too. It's happening, it has happened and it does happen until, you, until we reach glory. Hallelujah, right? Until we're there. Um, but we're also putting on the new self. This is the active reminding of, of our new identity. Putting on the new self means that we continually are deciding to live uh, a heart I'm sorry, to live a life of worship towards God, where we're really two things happening. First, the, the first birth, the, the, our actual birth when we're born into the image of God, that's being renewed more and more to where we live like we're actually uh, living 
in the image of God, but then our new birth, where John 3, 3, Nick at night, where Jesus tells him about the new birth, that both of those births are finally being renewed into the image of God, or uh, the way that we're supposed to live. Calvin says that regeneration is the formation anew of the image of God, the design contemplated by regeneration to recall us from our wanderings to that end for which we were created. In other words, Calvin can be wordy. In other words, whenever you were born, you had a heart that wandered. Not like W-O, but W-A, right? You, You wandered away, I'm Southern, wandered away from God. You sinfully wanted to just wander away. But whenever you're regenerated, that's, you're, you're brought to repentance, you cast off the old self, and then you start walking back to Christ in newness of life, putting on the new life. You don't want to wander anymore, but, st- but instead, your heart and mind have been awakened for the end for which you were created. That end is to give glory to Jesus, and now that's all you want to do, is walk in repentance back to Christ and live for Christ. So we're created by God to bring glory to him. Even though our hearts are prone to wonder, and sometimes that, that coming back has paths of sinfulness, we, we come back and we continually walk towards Jesus. The overall, uh, the overall path is back to Jesus. We don't want to continue wondering, but instead coming back to Jesus and being a worshiper of Jesus. In his commentary, Tony Morita Uh, gives a great illustration of this putting off the old self and putting on the new self to put some flesh on this idea, on these theological concepts. He says, after spending about 35, Tony uh, is a pastor in Raleigh. He writes, he's a seminary professor. Um, He's our age, um, if you're my age. Uh, But (laughs) he's got four kids, right? He's got four kids, but he couldn't have kids. He couldn't have kids. He had to adopt. And he tells this story. After spending 35 days in Ukraine trying to adopt, in an effort to adopt our four children, my wife and I finally, after 35 days, that's a long time, in Ukraine, finally had permission to go home with our children. All of the legal work was finally done, and we were eager to begin to show them love in many ways, including cleaning them up and giving them some new clothes. They'd been wearing the same smelly clothes and the same worn-out shoes every day since we arrived for those 35, and presumably before they arrived, incalculable amounts of days. Once we had permission to leave, we brought them some brand new outfits. Kimberly took the older two children, I took the younger two. I told the girls with a translator, girls, we're going home. Little Victoria asked, forever? I said, yes, forever. Their faces lit up as I gave them their denim dresses. If you don't like denim dresses, pretend you love denim dresses. Imagine these are the best dresses you've ever seen in your life. I gave them their denim dresses, socks, and shirts, and more. They went to the bathroom. They changed out all their garments. And in their orphanage, upon leaving, the children had to leave behind every piece of clothing that they had been wearing. What a picture of the gospel. They had put off their old orphanage garments and put on their new clothes from their adoptive parents. New clothes, new identity, new home, new security, and a new way to live. This is exactly what Christ has done. He told us, take off your old orphanage sinful practices and put on and clothe you with the righteousness of Christ. You've got an adoptive father now. You're leaving the orphanage forever? Yes, forever. And you're coming to your new home with Jesus forever. This is exactly what he's done. So when we say we put off the old clothes, we're being invited into a new family, the best family there is. It's not like a second class, well, leaving this one family to go to this next family, we'll check it out. It's the best family there is. There's no better family. You're being adopted out, every one of us, adopted out of the orphanage and brought into the best family there is, God's family, and been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have a new identity and a new Lord. Mark Driscoll says it this way in his book on the Ephesians. He says, your new Lord loves you, forgives you, serves you, gifts you, hears you, empowers you, and indwells you. He will never fail you, never leave you, never forsake you. Your new Lord, uh, Jesus, has defeated Satan, your old Lord, so that you no longer have to believe his lies, succumb to his temptations, or serve Satan's mission. You've been given a new mission. Among the wondrous benefits of having Jesus as a new Lord is that the other previous, previous and false lords used by Satan, such as like an abusive boyfriend or parent or spouse would do, those things are dethroned 
and you have a new Lord in Christ Jesus. So we've been given this brand new identity as we've thrown off our old orphanage clothes and been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and been brought into the family of God. Now, think of this state right where you are right now. When you enter into the new family, just like whenever Tony brought those children in, they had lived in an orphanage. They had different rules. And they brought in and he said, there's, there's new rules now. And whenever you want to obey mommy and daddy's new rules, you don't want to obey them out of like some kind of legalistic manner. Instead, I don't want you to obey because I said so. I want you to obey because your father brought you out of an orphanage. Same thing. You don't obey when, he t- when you come into his house and he says, these are the things I want you to do. Not to constrict you, but yet to give you new life. Like to help you flourish in your life. Stop doing these sinful things that actually hurt you. Start doing these amazing things that bring you new life. You don't do them out of some legalistic manner. But instead, because your father has brought you out of your sinful orphanage into his family, you love him. You, you can't believe that he saved you and brought you out of such horrible conditions into his house. Yes, I want to follow these commands. Yes, I want to live like you want me to live in this house because you brought me out of such a horrible place to where I was futile in my mind. I did not have life, God in my life and I was callous towards sin. And you, you brought me out of those things. So as we go into verse 25 and he starts giving us practical advice about what we look like and how it should live and how we should get rid of sin and start living, don't fall over into list mode And say, what's the list? I got to do it. But instead, let your heart rejoice in what Christ has done. And that you love obeying him. And here's the good news. Paul doesn't give you in this list the four things you have to do in order to to make Jesus happy, right? Because there's like 40,000 other ones, right? He just does four. This is not an exhaustive list. These are four examples of how to live for Jesus. Four examples of sinful practices to get rid of and start doing. And he actually gives another list in 31 of another six. (laughs) So there's 10. And you could not struggle with any of those 10, but a whole nother 10. The whole point is, don't look at these things as a list to obey. But instead, think of it as what Christ has done and whatever's going on in my life. The Holy Spirit will show me because he renews me in in my spirit, uh, in my mind. And he shows me the things that have to go. And the things I need to do. But nevertheless, we're still commanded to get rid of the sin. Colossians 3, 5, Romans 8, 13, among others. Put to death the things that are sinful in your life by the Spirit. So here we'll see these things uh, in these particular verses. There's four specific sins that he addresses. Um, These are not all the sins in the world. These are just four. Um, But you should notice these things. So there's, there's sinful practices that are internal that no one knows. And there's sinful practices that, that involve relationship. All four of these are, the, are, are sinful practices that involve relationship. I think this highlights for us God's importance of living in community. He wants you in community. He wants you in relationship. And when you're in relationship, these are four things that you could do sinfully uh, to hurt people's friendships and your relationships. All four of these are relational sins. And as he does it, you should know, he tells you the thing that you shouldn't do, the opposite of how you should do it, and even why. Why you should do it. And every single one of these Stop doing this, start doing this, and here's why. Look at the first one. Don't lie, tell the truth. Don't lie, tell the truth. Therefore, so remember when you see a therefore, you always want to know what it's there for. So it means based on everything we just said, who you were and, and who you are, this is how you live. Therefore, having put away falsehood, don't lie. Let each one of you speak the truth, tell the truth. With his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The reason why? For? Because you're actually members of one another. So you don't lie to your neighbors because you're actually part of the same body. It's like lying to yourself. So don't lie. Tell the truth because you're actually a member of a body with those people. You don't lie to yourself. So that's the first one. So when we see here, don't lie. Tell the truth. Put away all falsehood and speak the truth. We... When we tell the truth, the full truth, all the things that happen without withholding anything, we imitate God. When we lie, we imitate Satan, the father of lies. So when we tell the truth, this doesn't mean that I tell you just enough that's still true, but there's more I could have told you, 
but I don't want to make, make you mad or hurt your feelings or whatever, right? That's not, that's not telling the full truth. We're not half-truth half speakers. We're Christians. We're, we're followers of Jesus that love him. So we tell the full truth of everything. No omission. We tell everything. That's the way to be Christ-like. At, at our home, we say, that when, with our kids, we try to teach them, the chambers are truth-tellers. Because we're Christians, right? Because we love Jesus. And so we, want to, but we try to remind them, if you tell just a half-truth and not the full truth, that's not the full truth. That's still really a full lie. And that's not what pleases Jesus, right? Now, automatically, you're falling over into list mode. <laughs> At least in my head, I would be falling over. Make sure don't ever tell the full truth or Jesus is mad. Not into list mode, right? Instead, a heart that loves Jesus wants to reflect Jesus. God is a, he's a, he's a truth teller. His word is truth. And so we don't want to imitate Satan. We want to imitate Jesus out of love. So the reason why, as he says, is to, uh, we tell the truth and don't lie and tell the truth because we're members of one another. It means uh, everybody in your church, you tell them the full truth. You love them, you care for them, and you tell them what's going on in your life. They ask, um, you tell them. Because really you have nothing to hide. If God has redeemed you completely, if you've been taken out of the orphanage and brought into God's family, I mean, really, what's there to hide? Life is pretty awesome. <laughs> so we have nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. So we tell the truth. The next one, you can see, uh, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So don't sin in anger, but still you can have righteous indignation. And the reason why is because if you sin in anger, you give an opportunity or a foothold for the devil in your life. Don't give the devil any kind of foothold in your life. That's bad. So here we're told to be angry and don't sin. And this can be tough. Uh, the longer you're with people, in relationship with people, I think this can even cause uh, you to, to have a, an ongoing anger to where you, your resentment that you try to hold down and eventually it can, it can explode. So Paul uh, is telling us, uh, to be angry, but don't sin. He's not forbidding anger. Remember, he's not forbidding anger. Jesus got angry when he turned over the tables. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, anger in and of itself is not sin. But he's Jesus. For us, I think it's a little bit different. Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't. He never did. But we are sinners. And so for us, the, the admonition to be angry, but don't sin, I think is really difficult. It's really difficult. But he tells us clearly that that's what we're supposed to do. It's what's possible. But there's two things you can see here. Whenever we feel angry coming up, he tells us two things specifically to make sure that we watch whenever we feel angry. One, don't sin when you're angry. You have to have a serious focus here that whenever you feel anger, you point the anger towards the sin, not the one doing it, so that you have righteous indignation. You have a sin uh, uh, an anger towards the sin, not the person. It's very difficult. I, I, I will concede you that. Nevertheless, we're told to not sin when we're angry. The second thing we're told is that we deal with it quickly. Whenever we're angry, we deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger means, basically, in general principles of your life, whenever you feel angry, if you don't deal with it quickly, it festers and festers and festers and festers and festers and festers and festers and, festers and, festers and then it explodes, right? That's what it does. And so it says... Don't let the sun go down on your anger. At the Chambers household, we take this literally. We take this literally. So if there's ever... Th now, I know this might surprise y'all, but sometimes Christy and I have arguments. I know that's surprising, but we do, right? But we take this literally. Right? So uh, I'm actually a night owl, so let, not letting the sun go down on my anger, not a big deal for me. Christy's the Michael Jordan of sleep, and so at 8 p.m. she's done. Uh, let me be more contemporaneous. She's the LeBron James of sleep, or if you don't like LeBron, the Steph Curry of sleep, but whatever you want to say, the Tom Brady, whoever you like, if you don't like Tom Brady, the Peyton Manning, whatever. Like, she's good at sleep, right? And when it's 8 p.m., because she's a mom of whatever we have, a bunch, like, she's tired. She's ready to go. If something happens, like, we got to stay awake, we got to fix this. She's like, oh, come on, no. Now, this is just our general principle, right? I, I, I really say at the Chambers household, we got to fix this tonight. we got to talk it through. Then we can go to bed. You, I mean, it's a principle, so I wouldn't take this literally. If you both have to get up at 3 a.m., the point is deal with it quickly. Deal with it quickly. It's not a legalistic, hard and fast rule. you got to do it right before the sun goes down or you're in sin. 
At the Chamber's house, it's a legalistic rule. We've got to deal for it before the sun goes down, right? Because I just, if I know something's wrong, I, I can't concentrate on anything. So I've got to get it done. But you might not have that weird personality like me. But the point is this. Whenever you feel angry, don't sin. Deal with it quickly. Don't sin and deal with it quickly. But the admonition then is to be angry and don't sin. Why? So that you don't give an opportunity to the devil. Because... You're no longer in that first phase anymore, that first section. You're not living as a pagan, walking as a pagan. The devil has no foothold on you. You've already let go of the old self, the old clothes. That's gone. You left the orphanage. He has no hold over you anymore. So don't give him opportunities. Deal with your anger quickly. The next one is uh, don't steal, but work hard. Don't steal, but work hard. You can see it in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And then he tells us, so that. Now, uh, I've told this before, but Ephesians and Colossians are kind of like cousin books. They're really closely related to each other. Most of them say a lot of the same things. So in the cousin book, Colossians, when he tells us to work hard, he tells us work hardly as to the Lord. We work hard because we want to give glory to God when we work. In the cousin book of Ephesians, he tells us you work hard so that you can have stuff not just because of the cousin re- or the, the Colossians reason, but here, so that when you have stuff, you can give th- stuff to other people. Look what he says. Uh, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather him, rather rather him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We don't steal, but we work hard so that when we have abundance, we can share with other people. That's a reason why we work hard. Many reasons why we work hard, but that's one. So let's talk about stealing. Stealing can be subtle and it can be obvious. Stealing can be subtle and it can be obvious. It can be the obvious things like uh, robbing a bank. It can be subtle things too, like taking pens at work. These pens are free. You can take these. Gary, at first service, like everybody's feeling bad. You're going to get like 400 pens brought back to you next week. These pens are free. I want you to steal these. So that you give them to people and they see Remedy Church and like, oh, where's Remedy? Let's just check that out, RemedyChurch.org. Let's go there. So these are for free, right? Take these pens, hand them out, whatever. However, let me say this. When I go into this list of subtle sins of stealing, you're going to first say, that can't be, he's just, being, he's just being legalistic. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Stealing is wrong. So like uh, overcharging customers if you're a salesman, not giving people everything that they paid for, not working hard for your employer while you're on the clock, surfing the internet at work is stealing time from them, stealing money from, from them, getting uh, copies of music that you didn't pay for. I mean, that's something people used to do. Maybe you still that. Now. But, I mean, you can say, ah, these things aren't big deals. That's just like 99 cents. That doesn't cost much. Holiness is not small and it costs a lot. So stealing can be subtle, like those things I listed. And I could have listed four more thousand that made you mad. Or maybe it didn't. You're like, yeah, that's right. I can't stand when people do that. (laughs) Or stealing can be obvious, like you cheated on your taxes or whatever, right? The whole point is this. When we do that, we're a thief. So don't let the thief steal anymore. Instead, work hard. God's design for us is to work hard for our stuff, to get our things by working hard. As Colossians 3.20 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. So for Christians, we don't steal. We pay for our stuff. We get things by working hard. And when there's abundance, we have the amazing opportunity to bless others. As it says, um, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. John Wesley says it this way, work as hard as you can. Make as much money as you can, then give as much as you can away. That's pretty good. Even for a non-Calvinist, that's pretty good, right? You might not know he's a non-Calvinist, but he is. So I'll tell you a little story on, on Wesley. This has nothing to do with the text. But one day, Wesley was, was, he was a traveling preacher. So he's, you know, traveling around, preaching all over America or whatever. And so one day, a guy was walking by and saw him. You know, Wesley was crying in the ditch, like weeping and upset. And he's like, what's the matter with you? And he's like, 
crying. He's like, I feel like I'm out of the Lord's will. Uh, no one has persecuted me for at least four days. I know something's wrong with my life. I'm out of the will of God for some reason, and he's angry at me. And while he's complaining and crying to this guy, all of a sudden somebody pelts him with a rock. He's like, be quiet. He don't like you. And he's like, starts rejoicing. Woo-hoo! He, pe- he persecuted me. I'm back in the Lord's will. Yes. Woo! And he rejoices and rides off and tells the gospel of more cities. Um, so, you know, a little off on his theology, but whatever. This sentence is pretty good. Work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give as much as you can away. And that's, we don't steal. We work hard. We make as much as we can. And we, we, we do the thing, we pay for the things that we need, you know, whatever it is, your house, your food, whatever, your kids, etc. And then you also have abundance where you can, as it says, so that he may have something to share with others in need. They're not stealing. Those in need that are receiving, they're not stealing. You're willingly giving it to them. Sometimes they can't work. Sometimes they're, whatever, Right? You don't tell them, work. <laughs> Instead, you, you help them. I, I, w- I saw someone a week ago, uh, a guy that was homeless asked this guy for, for money. And he said, do you have a job? And he said, I don't have a job. And he says, go get a job. I'm not paying for you to eat. And I remember just thinking, oh, I cannot believe I just heard what I heard. I, w- I didn't have any money at the time. I was like, man, I wish I could have helped. But I cannot believe that I just heard what I heard. It was, it was amazingly sinful, amazingly sinful. Um, that's not what believers do, right? We help people and give them something to eat. Give them their needs that they can. So as we're looking at this, uh, there, was, there was one guy that Jesus interacted with, uh, Luke 19, Luke 19, Zacchaeus, where he realized he had stole from a lot of people and then realized he had to ride it. And he goes, I'm gonna pay four pounds back to everybody. Maybe you're having a Zacchaeus moment here too, where you've realized that you've been a taker and not a giver. And the Lord's showing you, this is how, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not telling you you got to give four times back to people, right? You don't have to give anything back if the Lord doesn't tell you to. That's up to you and Jesus. But my point is, maybe you're having a Zacchaeus moment where you say, I don't want to be a taker anymore, even wrongly. Instead, I want to be a, a hard worker that's able to give. I want to be someone that works hard and doesn't steal. The fourth one you can see here is, uh, don't have corrupt talk, but instead have building up grace-giving talk. And the reason why, as you can see, is that you've been uh, able, you have an opportunity to build up and, and, and give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit either. So here we see, he turns to the tongue, Paul does, and he says, don't have corrupt talk. Now, corrupt talk isn't just saying cuss words. So this isn't like know the list of cuss words and don't say those. It's not that. It's far, it is that, but it's far more than that. Corrupt speech is speech that is, um, as you look at this word, putrid, rotten, defiling, and injurious to others. It injures them. Even for believers that are far along in sanctification, they can sometimes struggle with this. So it's not like this is a new believer thing. This can be an all-believer thing. And so... In addition to prayer, we're told to fill our hearts and minds with things that are pure and holy. Um, and we want to speak with, with three kind of lofty goals for our words. You can see them right there. Three, three lofty goals. We, we don't want to have corrupting talk. Instead, we want to have talk that is good for building up, that fits the occasion, and gives grace to those who hear. This is a, uh, a required memory verse at the Chambers household uh, because this can be, you know, it's going to be one that can be broken sometimes. And so we want to do everything we can to not have corrupting talk, talk that's putrid, rotten, defiling, and injurious to others. But we want to have talk that's good for building up. It fits the occasion, and it actually doesn't break them down and hurt them, but it gives grace to them. It displays the good news of the gospel to them. Uh, in, the, in the cousin letter, Colossians, uh, he says it this way, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we want to strive that when we talk to other people, we're not quick with sarcasm or quick with a name or quick with things that are bad. Guilty, right? Maybe you are guilty. But instead, whenever we speak to people, we want to strive to do these three things. We want to have speech that builds them up, that fits the occasion, and gives grace to those who hear. And then when we don't, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit this is anthropomorphic language, but um, anthropomorphic language is uh, whenever we 
assign human attributes to God, like the eyes of God wander to and fro. God doesn't have eyes, he's spirit, right? But we're assigning a human attribute to God to try to help you understand what God's like. So grieving the Holy Spirit is still kind of an anthropomorphic language where we're assigning a human attribute to God to try to help us understand what's going on. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. um, But nevertheless, this is meaning uh, when we grieve the Holy Spirit or quenching the Holy Spirit, this is... um, Doing things that the Holy Spirit, uh, he's leading us to do one thing, and yet we're, we're shoving him aside and saying, I don't want to do what you're leading me. I want to do what I want. I want to do what I want. So uh, we, we watch our speech because the Holy Spirit leads us to build up others, fits the occasion, and give grace. And if we have corrupting talk, we're pushing the Holy Spirit aside and saying, I don't want to do what you want. I want to do what I want. Uh, and then after that, he tells us in verse 31, he gives us a whole other list. Real quick, just pops them off right there. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So don't, you, you shouldn't have resentment towards each other. You shouldn't have indignation towards each other. You shouldn't have fury towards each other. You shouldn't have violent outs, outbursts towards each other. You shouldn't have abusive speech towards each other. You shouldn't have a heart and mind that, in, that enjoys an evil inclination and takes delight in hurting others. You shouldn't have those things in your life. Get rid of those things. So he literally launches, out, or literally launches out with a whole other six things in verse 31 to not do. So your inclination here could be there's 10 things, not do. Uh, again, you might not struggle with any of those 10 things. It could be a whole other 10 things. The goal isn't just get the list and follow it. The goal is to be amazed at what Christ has done and want to live a life of worship to him, getting rid of all sinful things and doing all righteous things. He even tells us in verse 32 the positive things that we can do. In verse 32, look, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to one another. Forgive one another as Christ forgave you. You want to be kind to each other. You want to be tender-hearted. So when people are having burdens in their life, you want to come alongside them out of tenderness, out of love, out of care, bear their burden with them. You want to know what's going on. You want to actually ask what's going on in their life. It's real easy just to be so entrenched in your day-to-day to not be tender-hearted to want to even find out what's going on in their life and how you can bear their burden, how you can help them. So we want to be kind. We want to be tender-hearted, and forgive, as God in Christ has forgiven you. If someone has sinned against you, and you would ask yourself, "How can I ever bring myself to forgive them for what they did?" It could be horrible. It could be terrible. Well, every single one of us willfully sinned against God, and it's horrible. And if He, who is perfectly righteous, can forgive us, then we, who are not perfectly righteous, because God has forgiven us, can forgive others, even things that they've done that are terrible against us. So forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Now, I want to close this way. As we're talking about living in our new identity, I want to go back up to that middle section. And hopefully, as we look at this text, as we look at the middle section, your hearts would, as you know what you're supposed to do and you remember where you've come from, and we've even looked at this new identity, as we look at it again, Uh, Pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your heart and mind in such a way that you are just absolutely overjoyed when you hear this. Think about the orphanage. Think about being pulled out of the orphanage into God's family. This is what Christ has done for you. Verse 21, you've been taught in Jesus, the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self. If you've repented from, from sin, you've put off the old self. You've took off the old sinful clothes and left them behind at the orphanage. They're no longer yours. You don't have to do that anymore. It belongs to your old former manner of life, way of life and, and it's corrupt and thoughtful, deceitful desires. And now the Holy Spirit's come in you and he's renewing your mind and he's bringing to, to mind all the things that are sinful and not and that you're wanting to do all these, get rid of the sinful things and do all things to the glory of God. And then he also, you put on the new self, So when you went into the changing room and you put on the righteousness of Christ, he gave it to you, but you still made an active decision. I want to get rid of the old self and I by repenting and put on the new self in Christ. And I want to walk away from that and walk into this new glorious family, this new home that Christ has invited me into. You put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Don't miss those words. Don't, don't jump through those amazing words that just said. When you put on Christ and you came to his family, look at this. You are now created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and true holiness. You have the absolute ability, without a doubt, to put away sin in your life and live a way that that honors Christ and reflects Jesus to this world. When we come to the Lord's Supper, this is an, an awakening in our hearts and a reminding in our hearts that we have received this. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves that these things are now true of us, that we have true righteousness and true holiness. So we're gonna go into a time of the Lord's Supper now where we think on the fact that this has happened in our lives. And as we, we leave these walls, whenever we go outside, we wanna start living lives that put away sin and live lives that um, l- show that we want to give a life of worship towards Jesus. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll go into a time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate this amazing transformation that's happened in our life. We remember what Christ has done. Let's pray.